The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. If you're a new listener, let me give you the rundown on what this podcast is all about. Over the coming weeks and months, my goal is to tell the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dive deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. If that's of interest to you, I'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to my YouTube channel to get the latest updates as new episodes are released. Also, if you're someone who'd rather just listen to the audio version, you can find my podcast on most podcasting platforms. But of course, the main ones are Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, CastBox, and Stitcher. I've got a few other submissions pending on some additional platforms, but the main ones should be covered. I will say that the YouTube version is going to have more rich content, images, videos, and of course my beautiful face. But if you'd rather hear me uh, than see me, I 100% understand you wouldn't be the first person to have that opinion. That being said, if you listen and share with your friends or family to help me get the word out, I would be in your debt. A few additional call outs before we get into this episode. Number one, I haven't fully decided on the different levels of membership, but I have started a Patreon channel so that people can donate to the show. I'll probably be splitting things out into two to three layers of membership, each level coming with its own benefits. I'm thinking of maybe a soldier level, capo regime, and underboss, with each layer having a higher level of benefit. Just be on the lookout for that. Any donations will be directly put back into continuing to produce the show and or potentially a charity. I haven't decided just yet, so stay tuned. Number two, I've created a merchandise store using a third-party service called Teespring. So if you'd like to buy members-only podcast-branded items, you can do so by visiting my website, which is online at www.membersonlypodcast.com, with the link to my Teespring store being directly available in the top navigation. It's labeled Merch. Please note that the website is still a work in progress, but when you're a one-man army like myself, these things take time. Uh, again, similar to what I'll be doing on Patreon, any money the store makes will be reinvested back into the show's production costs, as well as potentially a charity at some point in the future. As of now, the merchandise is simply members-only podcast branded clothing, but my hope is to expand into other types of swag, as well as to design some cool custom t-shirts. I'm planning to do a series with old gangster mugshots. So imagine a Lucky Luciano mugshot t-shirt coming down the pipe, as that one will probably be the first on my list. 
Number three, I'll be doing more gangster biographies in the upcoming weeks and months, and my plan is to focus on people that are lesser known. Do you have any suggestions at all on who I should cover or want to get in touch with me and provide feedback or keep the conversation going? You can email the show at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail. That's membersonlypodcastshow at gmail. I'll be building a pretty robust schedule, so if you want your person to get in, send me an email and I'll see what I can do. Okay, so on to today's show. After releasing the first episode, I asked for feedback from a few of my friends and family members on what was good, what stunk, what things I could do to make the show better, and boy, did you guys not disappoint, so I'm hoping to take some of the constructive criticisms to make the show better. The biggest thing that stood out was the need for a primer episode on the American mob. While a certain percentage of my audience will be people who have a more extensive knowledge base, some of my listeners are hearing some of this history and lingo for the first time. So in the first episode, when I pretty much dove right into the highly detailed and advanced story around the rise of Tommy Gagliano, my use of terms like getting his button and even things as basic as the names of mob families kind of went over some of the listeners' heads. So this episode will be geared at providing a high-level 101-style overview of the American mob dating back to its beginnings up to present time. We'll also be covering the lingo and what certain things mean. My hope is that we can kind of set the table with some foundational info and then in the future, anyone who needs a quick download to catch up on the basics can simply just refer back to this episode series. This way, when we tackle some of the future episodes, which will get into very advanced topics at times, it won't go over your head nearly as much. As there is a ton of info to cover, we'll be doing this in two shows. So let's get started with part one. Probably the first and most obvious question is, where did the American mob come from? The short answer is Italy, and more specifically, Sicily. If you want to read more about the origins of the mafia, I highly recommend that you read Selwyn Robb's book, Five Families, The Rise, Decline, and Resurgence of America's Most Powerful Empires, as it's probably the best and most comprehensive book ever written on the New York families. Here's a quick excerpt from the book on the origins of the Italian Mafia. To the casual traveler, Sicily for centuries was an enchanted land, one of the most pleasant places on earth to live. It was comforting to be seduced by the island's inordinately gracious people, sunny weather, alluring palm trees, and the delicate fragrance of its orange and lemon blossoms. But those intoxicating superficial impressions were largely a mirage. For over 2,000 years, most of Sicily's population endured tyranny and suppression under foreign conquerors and feudal overlords. From ancient times until the mid-19th century, the 9,000-square-mile island was raided, invaded, and even traded, actually exchanged for other territories by foreign rulers. Sicily's strategic and vulnerable location, almost in the center of the Mediterranean Sea, close to southern Italy and North Africa, subjected it to an endless succession of occupations and oppression by the Phoenicians, Greek, Etruscans, Carthaginians, Romans, Byzantines, Normans, Arabs, French, Spanish, 
Austrian, and finally hostile Italian armies. Sicilians survived these occupations by developing a culture rooted in two basic concepts, contempt for and suspicion of government authorities and tight-knit alliances with blood relatives and with fellow countrymen facing the same perils. Analyzing the fundamental siege mentality of large numbers of Sicilians from the vantage point of the 20th century, Luigi Barzini, in his book, The Italians, observed they are taught in the cradle or are born already knowing that they must aid each other, side with their friends and fight the common enemy, even when the friends are wrong and the enemies are right. Each must defend his dignity at all costs and never allow the smallest slights and insults to go unavenged. They must keep secrets and always beware of the official authorities and laws. Over time, these historical and cultural underpinnings spawned furtive clans in the Sicilian dialect, Koch, for self-preservation against perceived corrupt oppressors. Without the security of reliable public institutions to protect them or their property, the clans, which were mainly in the countryside, relied on stealth, compromised, and vendetta to extract private justice. Eventually, the secret Koch became commonly labeled in Sicily by a single name, Mafia. Over hundreds of years, they evolved from guerrilla-like disorganized bands for self-defense into greedy, terrifying gangs whose basic concepts and guiding principles would extend with profound influence far across the seas to America. So this is where it all started. Eventually, mafia clans in Sicily grew in power after the unification of Sicily, in which Sicily became a part of Italy and through a collaboration with the Catholic Church in Rome, became a force to be reckoned with and even a second government. From this, Sicily became a bastion for the mafia and it remains there even today. Let me read you another excerpt from Five Families. After Italy's unification in Sicily, the most prevalent image of the typical mafiosi was that of the unsparring enforcer with a lupara, a sawed-off shotgun slung over his shoulder, eager to exact mafia-style justice. In the late 19th century, the strongest coach sought to solidify their power and resist encroachments from rival families by adopting a new practice, the ritual of the loyalty blood oath of Amerta. Once inducted, a new member considered himself in the select ranks of the Honorato Societa, or Honored Society, and as a man of honor and man of respect, he could mockingly boast, the king of Italy might rule the island, but men of my tradition govern it. The ambivalent reverence and fear inspired by these clans was epitomized by the Sicilian folklore authority and supranationalist Giuseppe Pitre. Mafia is the force of the individual, intolerance toward the arrogance of others, Pitre wrote misguidedly at the turn of the century. Mafia unites the idea of beauty with superiority and valor in the best sense of the word, and sometimes more awareness of being a man, sureness of soul and audacity, but never arrogance never haughtiness. So the next question is, why did the mob come to America? So when we get to the late 19th century and early 20th century, the open door immigration policies of the United States were particularly attractive for Italians, especially Sicilian peasants, who were looking to escape the economic and social hardships of Sicily at the time. 
It's worth noting that between 1890 and 1920, approximately 4 million Italian and Sicilian immigrants came to the United States. And as with any large ethnic migration, some of them were or would become criminals. And some were mafia members running from the law or fleeing vendettas. And what do they do when they get here? They set up shop and they bring their traditions and culture with them. And for Sicilians, part of that culture is deeply rooted in family and an almost clannish nature, all of which are hallmarks of the Sicilian Mafia. Side fact, when you think of the mass immigration in the early 19th century, the first place most people think of is typically New York. However, the first documented cases of Mafia in the United States was actually in New Orleans around 1890. But we'll do a story on that at another time. It's quite a fascinating tale. So the issue that most Italians would run into is that places like New York City and other big cities were not that much different from what they were fleeing. And quite honestly, conditions they arrived to were possibly worse. The streets of New York were most certainly not paved in gold and Italians at the time faced systemic racism, most specifically from the Irish. There were no jobs and the jobs that were available were backbreaking and the wages were too low to feed the average Italian family, which was typically very large. So the conditions were horrible and Italians were not left with a lot of choices. It's either engage in criminal activity or starve to death. So while most simply go into the low wage labor force, many of the experienced criminals pick up where they left off in Sicily. And for some of the youths of the time, your, your Frank Costellos, your Lucky Lucianos, Vito Genovese, they saw the poverty of their family on one hand and the men of respect in the neighborhood making big money, wearing fancy clothes and who did not seem to have a job. And they would say to themselves, I want to do what they're doing to forego poverty and to live the high life. So as a start, many of them joined street gangs. According to nationalgangcenter.gov, gang emergence in the Northeast and Midwest was fueled by immigration and poverty, first by two waves of poor, largely white families from Europe. Seeking a better life, the early immigrant groups mainly settled in urban areas and formed communities to join each other in the economic struggle. Unfortunately, they had few marketable skills, difficulties in finding work and a place to live and adjusting to urban life were equally common among the European immigrants. Anglo native born Americans discriminated against these immigrants as well. Conflict was therefore imminent and gangs grew in such environments. At this time, the Five Points Gang was particularly influential, such as it is said to be the most significant street gang to form in the United States Ever. Its co-leader, Johnny Torrio, became a significant member of the Sicilian Mafia, La Cosa Nostra. He recruited street hoodlums from across New York City to the Five Points Gang, including a teenage Brooklyn boy of Italian descent. You know him as Al Capone, uh, also called Scarface. Uh, Capone became a member of the James Street Gang, which the Five Pointers considered a minor league outfit. The Five Points Gang became the major league to many young street gangsters and a farm club for the Mafia. The gang also specialized in supplying bodies to political entities and keeping unsympathetic voters away from the election center. It was a symbiotic relationship. Each group benefited from the influence of the other. In addition to the trend in gang membership as an education and breeding ground for young mafiosi, there is another trend that is happening around the same time. 
As more and more mafiosi begin setting up shop in America, we see a specific type of extortion begin to emerge in major cities, which has often been referred to as the Black Hand. The next question is, what is the Black Hand? The Black Hand, or the Mano Nera in Italian, was an early type of extortion racket that came to the United States along with the wave of Italian immigration in the late 19th century. The hallmark tactics of the Black Hand involved sending a letter to a victim threatening bodily harm, kidnap, arson, or murder with a demand of money to be delivered to a specific place. Black hand letters were often decorated with threatening symbols such as a smoking gun, hangman's noose, skull, or knife dripping with blood or pierced human heart and were frequently signed with a hand imprinted in thick black ink. Probably the most famous case of black hand extortion was that of Enrico Caruso. Enrico Caruso was a very famous tenor at the time of his extortion and because the black handers knew he was very obviously well paid, he became an easy target. As the story goes, Caruso received a black hand letter on which was drawn a black hand and dagger demanding $2,000. Obviously fearing for his safety, he decided to pay. The problem was this didn't alleviate the problem. Once it became public knowledge that he paid off the black hand, he received a stack of threatening letters a foot high, including another from the same gang for $15,000. To finally resolve the issue, he reported the incident to the police who arranged for him to drop off the money at a prearranged spot. And when the black handers picked up the ransom, the police arrested them. Another case of black hand extortion was that of Pasquale Patti. An excellent article from gangrule.com details the story. Very good article. In January 1908, a bomb blew open the front of an Italian bank, Pasquale, Patty, and Son, at 238 to 240 Elizabeth Street. Patty was the most successful Italian banker in New York with his business capitalized at $500,000, which was a huge sum of money for the day. The bank had the unusual trick of displaying piles of money behind their secured windows as proof of their ability to pay depositors. The son, Salvatore Patti, who was in the bank at the time of the bombing, managed to secure the money whilst the bomb throwers escaped into the crowds on Elizabeth Street. The bomb was not an attempt at robbery, but a warning from the Black Hand after Patti had publicly announced he would not fall for their attempts at extortion. After the explosion, nervous depositors began to withdraw their money, and in the next four weeks, over 400,000 in deposits were removed. On March 6, 1908, three armed men entered the bank but escaped empty-handed when Patty shot one man who later died in the hospital. Patty began to receive more death threats, including one note that said he would be cut up like a victim of the barrel murder several years ago. Ultimately, Patty was forced to close the bank just two weeks later after he learned a group of men had attempted to set fire to his family home in Brooklyn. He pinned a note to the front of the bank, reading this. The clientele of this bank be calm and trustworthy as the banker Pasquale Patti has long been obliged to absent himself to protect his existence and family. He has been molested and threatened and will be back soon. He possesses 45 houses and $100,000 life insurance and his bonds of 15,000 with the state of New York. 
a crowd that packed Elizabeth Street from Houston to Prince Street began to rush towards the next largest Italian bank, F. Asritelli and Son, 239 Elizabeth Street, which was then also forced to close. A police guard was provided for both banks. Three days later, after Patty had not reappeared, the Chamber of Italian Commerce was appointed receiver of the bank by the United States Circuit Court. Patty, who had built his businesses over 17 years, starting as a cobbler before moving into grocery and real estate, was a ruined man. That's a sad story. But typical of the black hand. Uh, that's just kind of what you get at the time. Uh, if you're trying to picture what the black hand might have looked like, uh, you can kind of see it on the big screen. Uh, in terms of the big screen, you can see a reasonable characterization of the Black Hand in Godfather number two with the character Don Finucci, whose story is also told into the novel. You get more detail uh, in the actual novel. Uh, of course, in the movie, Vito witnesses Finucci, the Black Hand, threatening and extorting Italians in his neighborhood and even loses his own job due to Finucci's demands. In the end, Vito kills Finucci and takes over the neighborhood in his place. But uh, what I would say is you can see in several scenes throughout the movie, uh, you know, Finucci using uh, black hand like tap tactics to to intimidate people. Uh, so definitely, if you want an idea of what it must have been like, uh, go watch Godfather number two and some of the flashback scenes. So the myth of the Black Hand spread through the Italian neighborhoods of America, which instilled a strong fear in the communities. Any mention of the Black Hand would cause people to cross themselves in hope of protection, right? Uh, so by 1915, the Black Hand types of extortion tactics, they quickly begin to decline. Uh, but it was quickly replaced four years later by another racket, one that would really blaze the most direct path to the formation of the modern mob. Okay, so the next big question you probably want to ask yourself, uh, you know, now that we've talked about uh, immigration, we've talked about uh, Italian poverty, the Sicilian mafia, and how it kind of trans transitioned over to the United States. Uh, so we get to about the uh, 1915 to 1920 timeframe and something else happens. Uh, and what I would say is this thing was the absolutely most critical thing that happened to make the American Mafia what it became. Uh, the foundation had been laid, uh, but this one event basically changed the game overnight. So on October 28th, 1919, the United States Congress overrode President Woodrow Wilson's override of the National Prohibition Act. This is the thing. Known as the Volstead Act, after Judiciary Committee Andrew Volstead of Minnesota, this law was introduced by the House to implement the Prohibition Amendment by defining the process and procedures for banning alcoholic beverages as well as their production and distribution. So basically what happens is 1919 comes along and alcohol, uh, the production of alcohol, the distribution of alcohol was completely outlawed. Completely outlawed, right? So huge deal. So let me give you a quick overview on why the Volstead Act was created. 
By the turn of the 20th century, temperance societies were prevalent in the United States. Concerned citizens had begun warning others about the effects of alcohol nearly 100 years earlier. And at the time, these groups had attained a high degree of political clout, enough to get this type of law passed. The temperance movement at the time was primarily driven by groups of women who viewed alcohol as a destroyer of families and marriages. They believed men would often spend their money on alcohol, leaving women with no money to provide for the children. Now, here's the deal. The amendment worked at first. Liquor consumption dropped, arrests for drunkenness fell, and the price of illegal alcohol rose higher than the average worker could afford. Alcohol consumption dropped by 30% and the United States Brewers Association admitted that the consumption of hard liquor was off 50% during Prohibition. However, these statistics were not reflective of the growing disobedience towards law and law enforcement within the larger American society. The intensity of the temperance advocates was matched only by the inventiveness of those who wanted to keep drinking. So the law came along, right? But the demand didn't stop, right? It's not like people all of a sudden just wanted to stop drinking. It just goes underground. So enforcing prohibition, it proved to be extremely difficult. And not only that, many law enforcement officials were themselves disobedient towards prohibition. They turned a blind eye. It was not a popular law. As a result, a black market for illegal production and distribution of liquor or bootlegging became rampant. And the national government, quite simply, they didn't have the means or the desire to try to enforce every border, lake, river, and speakeasy in America. So by 1925, in New York City alone, there were anywhere from 30,000 to 100,000 speakeasy clubs. Think of that. The, the New York is a big place, but it's not a big place in terms of geographical land. And you're fitting at that point in time, 30 to 100,000 speakeasies. There's gotta be literally a speakeasy in every block, right? In literally every block. So the demand for alcohol was outweighing and outwinning the demand for sobriety. Sounds, sounds like college, right? Uh, so who are some of the primary beneficiaries of this law? Quite honestly, it was gangsters. Seeing the amount of money to be made by supplying the nation's thirst, most prominent gangsters at the time became bootleggers, which resulted in them quickly becoming millionaires. So they pretty much, for the most part, the smart ones kind of just stopped what they were doing, recognizing the, uh, the profitability and the potential in terms of the amount of money that they could make uh, through selling bootlegged alcohol. Uh, and they diverted all of their resources into, into doing this. Uh, and the ones that did not want to divert their resources into uh, moving into the alcohol trade uh, were pushed aside or killed. Uh, probably the best example of this happened in Chicago uh, between Johnny Torrio and Big Jim Colosimo. Uh, Colosimo was already a millionaire and he was Torrio's boss in Chicago and he was fine. He didn't want to go into prohibition and he pretty much told Torrio uh, and also Capone at the time, no, we're not going to do that. And Torrio and Capone, of course, saw the money to be made. And they had they pretty much had Colosimo bumped off so that they could take over and take their family uh, into, you know, into into bootlegging. Right. And, and of course, Torrio and Capone become what they uh, what they what they become. 
what ensues throughout the 1920s is honestly murder and mayhem, especially in Chicago. Uh, bodies in the streets as bootleg turf wars kick up between various factions trying to service the demand. This includes Italians as well as Jewish and Irish gangsters. These bootleg wars are where the Hollywood image of the Tommy gun wielding gangster pulling drive-bys in their 1920s Ford Packard primarily stemmed from, only it wasn't just the movies, it was real. This really happened. Uh, the most notable gangland incident during Prohibition occurred in Chicago on February 14th, 1929, and it is famously referred to as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, fun fact, you can see the actual wall. So if you're ever looking at pictures uh, of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, you'll see that there's a brick wall uh, where these, these men, and I'll talk about the event in a second, where these men were lined up and shot the actual brick wall can be seen at the Mop Museum in Las Vegas. I've seen it, it's amazing. You can still see some of the bullet holes there. It is uh, an amazing piece of history. Uh, so here's from uh, a, an excellent source of information on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre from history.com. So the St. Valentine's Day Massacre shocked the world on February 14th, 1929, when Chicago's North Side erupted in gang violence. Gang warfare ruled the streets of Chicago during the late 1920s as chief gangster Al Capone sought to consolidate control by eliminating his rivals in the illegal trades of bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution. This rash of gang violence reached its bloody climax in a garage on the city's north side on February 14, 1929, when seven men associated with the Irish gangster George Bugs Moran, one of Capone's longtime enemies, mortal enemies, were shot to death by several men dressed as policemen. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, as it became known, remains an unsolved crime and was never officially linked to Capone, but he was generally conspired to have been responsible for the murders. So what actually ends up happening is Capone, he kind of goes not on the lam, but he goes to Florida. He had a, a place down in Miami. Uh, so when he knew that this was going to happen, of course, he gave the order. He goes down to Florida so that he can have an alibi. Uh, and he gives the order, the murders happen, phone calls from his place before they're coming through at his place in Miami, the phone calls stop and they don't pick up again until something like three days, uh, three days later, they had his phone phones tapped down in Miami. Uh, he was uh, doing a little bit with a court case down there so that he had a solid alibi. Anyway, uh, also a side fact, Capone, uh, mostly associated with being Italian mafia, his family eventually becomes Italian Mafia. Capone himself, not Mafia. He was not into all of the rules, the regulations, the, you know, the whatever that came afterwards. So Capone, not really Mafia, just a gangster. Anyways, so a few things are happening here during the 1920s. Uh, number one, most gangsters are receiving at a very, very young age, nonetheless, a master class in how to run and scale a business. This entrepreneurial experience will come in handy uh, when they when they begin to, uh, you know, really uh, mature uh, and mature their businesses and mature the organization in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, and when they start to scale and move into other types of mob rackets, uh, basically their experience uh, running all of the, this huge empire uh, with bootlegging gives them the experience that they need that when they start to move into other industries, they know how to run a business, right? 
They're not just peasants on the street anymore. They're entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. Uh, think of, uh, you know, think of uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, people that see things uh, at, a, at a very young age that, and see things in a way that other people can't see them. That is the experience uh, that these gangsters who were very young and up and comers in the 1920s uh, were getting. Uh, not only not only that, they were getting experience kind of in the streets with these these battles and these in these wars that were going on between the different factions. Uh, so they're learning how to be earners and they're all learning how to be shooters. Anyways, uh, so number two, we also see a shift in the balance of power from politicians and the establishment, kind of the the old guard to these underworld figures. So local and national politicians that had previously had all the money, the power and leverage to control local gangsters are now subservient to bootleggers and mafiosi. The new millionaire status created by prohibition allowed gangsters to turn the tables from a monetary standpoint, which led to bribes and large scale political corruption that didn't really start to get cleaned up uh, until the 1980s, right? So this sets in place uh, uh, kind of a path that lasts 50 to 60 years before it starts to get cleaned up. And it is still not fully cleaned up today, uh, the, the bribes and the political corruption. That, and don't get me wrong, it was going on well before this. Uh, but what really had happened is this turned the tables in the favor of the hoodlum. The hoodlum was now the rich one. Uh, the hoodlum, the hoodlum was now the one who had the money. It wasn't, it wasn't corruption coming from the political status down to the hoodlums, like you see in the movie Gangs of New York, when you see Tammany Hall, the politician, paying the hoodlums to do his bidding. What happens is the reverse of that, where you see the hoodlums paying the politicians to do their bidding. What's even more interesting here is that most mobsters, they come from poverty. And because of the times, they often didn't even finish traditional school, instead hitting the streets or starting to work at an early age to support their large families. Uh, so with their experience, honestly, many of them could have been uh, CEOs of legitimate companies, but due to choice and circumstance, they pretty much they became criminals. So the Volstead Act remains in effect until the passage of the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition uh, in 1933. Uh, and of course, underneath it all, uh, as the violence had reached its zenith, you have the Castellamarese War in New York City. This, in combination with Prohibition, were the two seminal events that can be tied most directly to the founding of the American mob. Okay, so that's it for part one. Uh, next week, we'll release uh, part two of this kind of 101 uh, Basics of the Mafia uh, informational episode where we'll dive into more questions and discuss some mafia slang and terminology. Uh, what I would say is if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, I'd love to hear from you in the comments below. Also, please rate the podcast on Apple to help the show grow and take a peek at our merch store uh, available on our website, www.membersonlypodcast.com. And until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.